Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. The emerald ash borer has made its way across New England, but it's difficult to know exactly where it is. That is actually one of the big problems with this insect, is how cryptic it is until it's there, until you can you reach that epidemic level, and then suddenly it's very obvious and you see it everywhere. From the New England News Collaborative, this is next. We'll track the path of this invasive insect. It's just reached Maine, where it threatens the culture of the Penobscot Nation. You never can accept the death of something that's so ancient and so culturally appropriate. And as recreational marijuana is legalized in Massachusetts, Gen Xers reconsider pot. I just remember being really happy. So if I can do some acceptable thing that reaches that level of happiness, that's great. Plus a look at the art of the New England farm. It's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. At the end of May of this year, an invasive species that's making its way around New England was discovered for the first time in the state of Maine, the emerald ash borer. Claire Rutledge is an associate agricultural scientist for the Department of Entomology at the Connecticut Agricultural Experiment Station. She joins us today to tell us more about this invasive species and plans to limit its growth around New England. Claire, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, John. So explain, first of all, what's an emerald ash borer? An emerald ash borer is a small insect. It's in the family Buprestidae, the jewel beetles. And we have a lot of native relatives of this insect here in in New England, about 54 species. But this one is from Asia. It is from the northeastern area of China, up into Russia and the Korean Peninsula. And it attacks ash trees. Talk about the specific threat that they have. We've established that they can be problems for millions of ash trees that are an important part of our forest. But how exactly does it work against the tree? Explain how long it takes for an emerald ash borer to cause a problem in a specific area. The emerald ash borer is a beetle, and the larvae of the beetle feed on the living layer between the bark of the tree and the wood of the tree. And that is a layer called the phloem, and it it transports the sap from the leaf to the roots, and they eat that. And when they eat that, when there's enough of them, they girdle the tree and kill the tree. And what tends to happen is when they come into a new area, there's a small number of them brought in by firewood or however it is they get there. But there is nothing that stops their numbers increasing. There is no specific natural enemies that are eating them. And they don't have any competition because the living phloem of an ash tree protects itself against things eating it. But for whatever reason, they do not protect themselves. They have no resistance against the emerald ash borer. And they, they will, as the infestation continues, kill trees at a faster and faster rate as the density of the beetle per tree increases. And so at the beginning of an infestation in an area, it might take seven or eight years to kill a tree. And by the end, it may only take two years. 
So I- explain exactly how widespread the problem of the emerald ash borer is in the New England region. We've read that Maine just now has seen it introduced relatively recently. Where else is it in our region? Maybe easier to say where it's not. Rhode Island is the only state now that is officially doesn't have it. Whether or not it actually has it, it probably does. Connecticut, we've got it. It's in western Massachusetts. It's in eastern Massachusetts. And that infestation is sort of the northeastern corner of Massachusetts up into New Hampshire. It was recently found in Vermont. Pretty good-sized infestation there, a lot bigger than they thought it would be. Again, it speaks to how cryptic and difficult this beetle is to find. And then this one up in Maine. And interestingly, it is not at all adjacent to New Hampshire or Vermont. They found it just across the border from Canada. So it's it's coming in from all sorts of different places. It's mm-hmm. very hard to find, but we can assume it's pretty much in some way, shape, or form all across our region. So what are people doing about it? I, I've, I know that you've been looking at one very specific instance of a, of a parasitic wasp that might help. I, I'd love to know more about that, but what's the, what's the solution here? We're not stopping it. It, it is spreading everywhere. So part of what we do is just trying to educate people and get them to prepare and figure out how to deal with it in terms of just the economics of getting either saving the trees with chemicals or taking them down. So so tell us about this wasp. What exactly happens here? A wasp that feeds on these ash borers? Yes. So this is what we call a classical biological control program. So the main problem we have with these beetles is that the trees don't fight back. But another problem is that when they came here, they left all of their specific predators at home. The things that eat them didn't come with them. So with a classical biological control program, what you're seeking to do is to reintroduce some of that mortality from predators by reintroducing the predators. And so you go back to the country from which your pest came and you look for Uh, natural enemies that will have an impact on their population. You want to find the most specific natural enemy you can. You want to find a natural enemy that won't switch targets. So rules of thumb, no vertebrates. Vertebrates are are smart. When their target starts to get scarce, they're going to eat something else. So no snakes, no toads, no (laughs) mongooses. If you had an emerald ash borer eating bear, you wouldn't want to bring that into the world. Oh, no, 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 absolutely not. So, yeah, so so you want something very specific. And parasitic wasps are often a go-to because they actually live in the body of the host, which is a neat trick. So the question of host switching is going to be less of a problem and hopefully not much fun at all. And there's an extensive amount of testing that needs to happen before you introduce anything like that. It was about a seven-year process. Huge reports and papers and impact statements were made, and it was finally approved for release in 2009. And how's it been working? For one thing, biocontrol is patience. Patience is a virtue. But studies that are being done to see the impact of it are encouraging. We can't say for sure it's a silver bullet yet, but it's encouraging. Claire Rutledge is an associate agricultural scientist for the Department of Entomology at the Connecticut State Agricultural Experiment Station. Claire, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. As we've heard, the invasive emerald ash borer was discovered for the first time in Maine. 
But for the Penobscot Nation in that state, the loss of the ash tree would be especially devastating. Joining us to discuss the effect of the emerald ash borer and climate change on the Penobscot Nation is John Banks. He's director of the Department of Natural Resources for the nation. John Banks, welcome to Next. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And also welcome to John Bear Mitchell, a citizen of the Penobscot Nation, a lecturer of Wabanaki Studies and Multicultural Studies at the University of Maine in Orono and the University of Maine Native American Waiver and Educational Program Coordinator. John Bear Mitchell, welcome to our program. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. John Banks, I'll start with you. What is the impact of the emerald ash borer being found in Maine to the Penobscot Nation? Well, the impact finding the emerald ash borer in Maine is very, very significant. Our tribe has a very long, deep uh, history uh, with the ash trees, and many of our cultural stories talk about ash trees and their significance in our tradition and our culture. The big threat is to our basket makers. We have a long history of making baskets out of what we call brown ash, which is black ash. It's called brown ash uh, within our tribe. And many tribal members have used brown ash for thousands of years to make baskets. So it's it's really a, a very profound impact if we are to lose our brown ash resource. John Bear Mitchell, could you talk a bit more about that, about some of the cultural and historical ties of, of the Penobscot Nation to, to the ash tree in particular? Yeah, we have several stories that talk about our relationship to the ash trees. One significant story is where we were created from that ash tree. We uh, have a creation story that talks about one of our people who was not necessarily human, but he was not necessarily an animal or a spiritual deity as well. He was a combination of all. And his name means the man from nothing. He showed up one day, and his name is Gluskub or Gluskabe. And he shot an arrow into an ash tree, and from that ash tree, when it split, came the people. And it really doesn't tie into like our origin, but it ties into who we are. It ties into that cultural heritage <laughs> of our use of that. It's very important for us. And the tree, the brown ash tree, has that significance and that importance in that it gave us life in some way, and that life is to continue on. And then in your tradition, I can imagine that if the ash tree is sick or dying or if there aren't as many ash as there have been in the past, that that must signify something. There must be something to it if this is in part of a fertility story, then the death of the ash tree or the demise of the species must be hugely problematic symbolically in in reality. It is. In reality, for those who make the baskets and those who maintain that tradition, symbolically for everybody else, like myself. But what is most significant about this is that as Penobscot people, we've seen the demise of resources over lifetime spans, not just one, but several. This is one we're seeing within our own lifetime, that this problem came about and will you know, decimate the population of brown ash trees in our individual lifetime when this is something that's very odd. We've seen many different cultural aspects disappear over many lifetimes. But to have it come around this quick, it does have some significance. You never can accept the death 
of something that's so ancient and so culturally appropriate in our daily lives so quickly. That's the biggest problem. John Banks, I'd love to hear more from you on this about how the tribe has been viewing this over the course of perhaps decades as you've seen some of this, this decline and what you're doing about it. We worked very closely with the Wabanaki Center and the Maine Forest Service, as well as the federal government, to engage in a fairly in-depth research of this particular bug and you know what its characteristics are in the overall ecology of things. And it, it's like a lot of foreign diseases that have been brought over to this country from Asia or Europe in that there are no natural mortality factors uh, here. And so all of the forestry professionals are predicting that this particular bug will eventually wipe out all of the ash trees in the state. So in a way, it's kind of almost like some of the diseases that affected the human populations on this continent with the arrival of new diseases that don't have natural mortality factors like they do in the country that they originated from. John Bear Mitchell, when, when John Banks talks about this disease of these beetles coming from overseas, uh, he makes a very clear point that this is connected in some ways to the long history of Native people here in America, that so much has been brought from overseas. Do, do you see this as part of a, a larger continuum? I mean, a lot of us see this as, yes, another invasive species coming from somewhere else into our environment, but perhaps we don't have the closeness to the devastation that can be wrought that you and your nation do. The face of death wears the same face as friendship. And so you've got to be careful traditionally in what you perceive as the face of friendship. And this is in our prophecies. They don't necessarily show themselves until later on down the road after you gain trust. So we need to gain trust. And obviously, indigenous people have been very trustful in the earlier stages of the development of this country, only to realize that those faces didn't have good intentions, although they looked like they did. I think we can use that analogy in maybe this particular case. I think these false promises that have been made to us throughout history have to be considered so that we don't repeat those same mistakes. John Barry Mitchell, can you talk a, a bit to us, though, about how, because you are closer to the natural world throughout your folklore, throughout your, your, your daily living, that you might have some particular insight into what climate change looks like and how it actually moves and affects things? I mean, is there some specific knowledge that you feel like you could bring to listeners about what climate change has really meant in your community? One of the key things, I think, is that for people like indigenous people like ourselves to be able to say, what did we have? And what we call now arts and crafts was actually a way of life. We built gigantic baskets. That technology in those baskets that we called canoes is still the same technology used today. So that's a 3,000 plus year old technology that has gone unchanged other than the materials in which it's made out of. But we do maintain 
the traditional ways of making those canoes or baskets which we float around in. I think if we look at these types of things that we have and have had that we don't anymore, and we look at how we've adapted, we can really teach a lot of people outside of our communities, non-native people, really how to acclimate to those kinds of changes. In, in our stories and in our prophecies, talk a lot about this road we will come to. This road is going to branch off into two roads. It's always been one. It's going to branch off into two, the way of the mind or the way of the soul, the way of the spirit. You can't have both. You've got to either think through the way of the mind, which is basically economic. We all need economics to take place because we're all a modern-day people. However, there's ways in which things can be done economically that's not so hurtful to the environment and to people because um, there are indigenous people all over the world who are suffering even greater than we are sometimes because of what we're doing in this country. So we need to sort of make a decision, and that decision is going to basically continue humanity in our way or eliminate humanity from the planet. And the way of the mind and the way of the spirit need to be distinguished, and that's why this road branches off, because we can't have both. It's very important, again, in our stories and in our prophecies, that we know them, because if we don't even know the stories or if we don't even know the prophecies, then we just function on a gut feeling, and sometimes that's not where we need to be. What happens if, as scientists predict, the ash borer and the effects of climate change wipe this tree right off the map, that we don't have ash trees anymore up and down Maine, all across New England, and certainly throughout your nation? What, what happens then? We find something else, and we make the decision on what we find to keep that tradition going. The unique relationship we have with the ash tree is very important, and we need to do everything we can so that we can tell future generations, if it does fail, that we tried everything we could do. And we always think for seven generations down the road, not just our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren, but what happens seven generations down the road? You know, what, what do we want them to remember us as? Those who gave up? or those who fought and did every single thing that we knew with the technology we have at this time to help them maintain that tradition. But that becomes another story then. That's a story that, that you get to create and you get to tell about adaptation or, or change that, that you're making for seven generations down the road. My first thought when you asked that question, John, was resiliency. The tribes, all tribes in this country have lived through so much hardship it's almost a miracle that some of us are still around, but I think being resilient and being able to make those changes and adjust is, is what kept us alive for thousands of years. Hmm. John Banks and John Bear Mitchell, thank you both so much for joining me. I really appreciate this. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. 
Coming up, as Massachusetts and Vermont legalize recreational marijuana, new populations are considering partaking in pot. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. This month, Massachusetts and Vermont are expected to start licensing retailers of recreational marijuana. And while it may take time for recreational shops to open and for all those issues related to legalization to get worked out, residents of the two states will soon have access to the drug like never before. But lots of people already, well, had access. And just because it's legal doesn't mean everyone will start lighting up. NEPR's Karen Brown reports on how Gen Xers are reconsidering pot as it becomes legal. So here I am, 51 years old, at a dead show. For the uninitiated, that's a few original members of the iconic 60s band, The Grateful Dead, plus a few other musicians. The last time I was among this much tie-dye was in the 80s, when I was a college student following the dead around the Bay Area. And I will admit, because I'm pretty sure there's a statute of limitations, I was not unfamiliar with the pungent haze wafting through the lawn seats, nor the baked goods being offered by a few ragged entrepreneurs. Marijuana has been off my radar for decades. For one, other than post-hippie gatherings like this, I wouldn't know where to get it. And two, it's been against the law. Robin Fordham is a friend of mine who, like me, hasn't smoked pot in years. I saw it as something that just carried the stigma. You were doing something that was illegal and therefore threatening to your kids and your family, and so it was just easier to stay away from. But things are about to change, at least in Massachusetts. In 2016, voters decided to legalize recreational weed. The state is now days away from allowing retail sales. And the question of whether to partake is back on many people's minds. I just remember being really happy. Tom is a 49-year-old Northampton dad who smoked a lot of weed in college. So if I can do some acceptable thing that reaches that level of happiness, that's great. Tom asked me not to use his last name because, as a consultant in the jewelry business, he works in states where cannabis is not legal. But he has good memories from his dope days. To me, it was utter relaxation. Uh, whatever stress or worries I had disappeared, and um, everything was hilarious. But he started to think it was affecting his memory and motivation. And after college, he worried employers might require drug tests. Plus, he doesn't like breaking the law. That's a major motivator for me, is to not get in trouble. So he gave up pot, got married, had two children, built a business. It never really tempted me, even. And not until they started talking about legalization. I was like, oh, that's interesting. you know. So then it would no longer be against the rules. My friend Robin shares Tom's feelings about legalization, if not the same nostalgia about smoking pot in her youth. Mostly it just made me tired and made me want to eat a lot. But the fact that it's become more legal has made it more appealing in terms of curiosity. It's like, oh, why not? I spoke to several people, like Tom and Robin, who are reconsidering a habit they abandoned years ago. Most wouldn't talk on tape because they worried there's still a stigma. Some told me they don't really crave the high anymore. And some wondered, is it even good for them? You have to put it in perspective. Is it a completely safe compound? No. 
Is it safer than other compounds that are available? Yes. Sean Hennessy is an epidemiologist who worked on a national report on the health effects of marijuana. He says the researchers reviewed 100 studies on cannabis and concluded the risks are relatively low, especially compared to alcohol. For example, it's difficult to consume enough cannabis to kill yourself acutely, whereas it's fairly easy to drink enough alcohol to kill yourself. But there are some health issues. For instance, Tom worries about damaging his lungs from smoking. Hennessy says smoking cannabis can bring on respiratory symptoms. And stopping smoking cannabis uh, has a tendency to make those respiratory symptoms go away. Unlike with tobacco, the report did not find a higher risk of lung cancer or heart problems from smoking marijuana. And Hennessy points out you can avoid inhaling cannabis by consuming it in lollipops or brownies, but be careful how much you eat. There are these stories of people who uh, go to Colorado for a pot vacation and take more edibles than they should and get put on the couch for a number of hours. On the mental health side, researchers found a correlation between schizophrenia and pot use, though it's possible people with schizophrenia are simply more likely to use cannabis. The evidence suggests symptoms of other mental illnesses, like bipolar disorder, can get worse. Hennessy says cannabis could help reduce opioid abuse if people choose the less addictive marijuana instead. And he says there's little evidence cannabis is a gateway to more dangerous drugs, like heroin. And if anything, that might become less as cannabis becomes uh, less criminalized. That's because, for some people, breaking the rules is an allure in itself. Tom doesn't think he'd be tempted to try harder drugs. He's more worried that by using cannabis openly, his teenage children would be more likely to try it. And there is evidence that marijuana can harm the developing brain. Plus, getting stoned can make you lazy. Just made it so easy to put things off that should have gotten done. And I don't want to model behavior that I don't want them to do. Then there's the question of potency, especially for people who haven't consumed marijuana in a long time. Hennessy recommends starting slow. People's physiology may have changed, and the weed that they're going to buy at the dispensary now uh, is probably a lot stronger than the weed that they were smoking 20 years ago. That's why Tom is comforted to think cannabis will be regulated and sold in stores. I kind of get the impression that the people in the stores are going to be relatively knowledgeable, and they're probably going to have a lot of 50-year-olds going uh, with similar stories. So I, I hope that you know they wouldn't give me anything that's beyond... Uh, you know, what I could handle. Robin doesn't expect to become a habitual user. She's just looking for an alternative to the occasional after-dinner drink. Instead of a glass of wine, what would that be like? You know, is it good for anxiety? Is it who knows, you know? But now it's, it just doesn't feel verboten. It doesn't feel scary. Of course, many people have been getting high for years. At the recent Dead show, recreational marijuana was not actually legal. The concert was in Connecticut, just over the Massachusetts border. But medical marijuana is allowed there, and judging by the ubiquitous haze and aroma, a large number of prescriptions were written for the occasion. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Karen Brown.
as more towns try to draw businesses back to their main streets, many shopping malls across the region have become nearly abandoned. With more empty storefronts than full ones, the 30-year-old Berkshire Mall in Lanesboro, Massachusetts, is one of those malls. But near Spencer Gifts and a now-shuttered Hollister, something rather unexpected is alive and well. Baseball. Rebecca Shear takes us on a tour of the baseball in the Berkshires Museum. The museum has collected more than 1,200 artifacts, representing everything from Little League, Town, and American Legion teams to the majors and minors. As you peruse the autographed balls and uniforms, pennants and posters, scorecards and photographs, you'd never know you're in a former outerwear store. This used to be an Eddie Bauer, you said? Yes, about 3,500 square feet. But then museum director Larry Moore leads you through a door in the back. This is our kids' locker room. This is a brilliant use of an old Eddie Bauer dressing room. (laughs) Here, burgeoning baseball fans can try on professional uniforms, mitts, and catcher's masks. They can compare their handprints, footprints, and heights with some of the dozens of pro players who grew up or settled in the Berkshires. They can measure themselves up against them. Frank Grant, not very tall. (laughs) At 5'7", Ulysses F. Frank Grant was born in Pittsfield in 1865. The African-American second baseman couldn't break the color line to join the majors, but his performance in the integrated minors and with touring black teams like the Cuban Giants got him into the Baseball Hall of Fame. The Berkshire's other inductee in Cooperstown is North Adams-born Happy Jack Chesbro. The pitcher's 41 wins during the 1904 season is still a major league record. But baseball in Berkshire County stretches back long before Chesbro and Grant laced up their cleats. Case in point, a facsimile of a local ordinance hanging on the museum's back wall. Over here we have 1791 and the famous bylaw. Pittsfield created this bylaw after building a beautiful new meeting house designed by superstar architect Charles Bullfinch. And it had glass windows, which were a treat around here and expensive to replace. The meeting house was opposite the town common, what we now call Park Square. That's where I meet baseball historian Jim Overmeyer, who says this was a hot spot for games, especially games with balls. So in 1791, Pittsfield banned all ball games within 80 feet of the meeting house. Because they didn't want the windows broken. The official list included cricket, football, something called cat, something else called vibes, and yes, baseball. So the 1791 bylaw? It is one of the earliest... uh, mentions of the game of baseball in the United States. Nearly 70 years later, and about 10 blocks north, Pittsfield scored another run in baseball history when Amherst College challenged Williams College to a game. The rivaling schools sought a neutral site, and in 1859, they agreed to play at the Maplewood Young Ladies Institute. It was a finishing school for girls. And if you look at the old maps, it pretty much occupied from here to the corner of First Street. Maplewood had recently purchased a building from the city of Pittsfield, then relocated it to campus. And get this, that building was none other than the Bullfinch Meeting House. So the ironic thing is, the baseball game was played next to the building that before everyone had worked so hard to protect from baseball. Luckily, no windows were broken in what would become the country's first intercollegiate baseball game. It lasted 26 innings. The game was very free-form in those days. Nobody had gloves. There was no foul territory. The ball could go anywhere. Amherst trounced Williams, 73-32. to 32. Right around the bicentennial, they actually recreated the game, and they used uniforms that resembled uniforms from the time period. 
and they recreated that right on this field. Tom Daly is president of the Baseball in the Berkshires Museum. The field we're visiting is Wakona Park, built in 1892. Hall of Famer Carlton Fisk got his start here. Satchel Paige passed through. A young Lou Gehrig hit a home run into the nearby Housatonic River. And um, one of the things that is unique about this park is that it faces the wrong direction for today's baseball. It faces west. And this was no big deal back when all games were day games. But now most of the games are played in the evening. So the sun sets right in the batter's and catcher's eyes. And they have to stop the baseball game for about 20 minutes to let the sun set. So is that considered like a sun delay? Sun delays. Yeah, they have sun delays, much like a rain delay. Wakona Park is among the last remaining baseball stadiums with a wooden grandstand. It's also one of the nation's oldest ballparks with an active team. Its current residents, the appropriately named Pittsfield Suns, whose players' memorabilia may very well end up at the Baseball in the Berkshires Museum. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Rebecca Shear. You used to be able to find Atlantic salmon living in the rivers and streams all over New England. But the population of wild Atlantic salmon has essentially disappeared, except in Maine. And now that once robust fishery is labeled endangered. Reporter Caroline Lester spoke to a man who's witnessed the decline firsthand. Claude Z. Westfall lives in Orono, Maine. And at 89 years old, he may be one of the best Atlantic salmon anglers alive. He was an engineering professor at the University of Maine, a famous fly tire, and has fished all over the world. He was also the last person to catch something called the presidential salmon. In 1912, Carl Anderson took the first Atlantic salmon, and it weighed 11 pounds and went to President Taft. For 80 years, the first Atlantic salmon of the season caught in Maine was offered up to the president of the United States. In 1992, Westfall caught that salmon and gave it to the first President Bush. We had Barbara Bush, had my wife, Rosemary Westfall. We had Governor John McKernan, Senator Olympia Snow, myself, President Bush, and this was all held down at Walker's Point in Kennebunkport. Westfall is showing me a picture of that meeting. It's hard to explain just how you feel because not too many people have that kind of an opportunity. And here I had quite a long time to spend with him and so on. We kept in contact after that. You you did? Oh, yes, several times. And I invited him up to fish salmon on on the river here because he loved to fish. After that year, as the Atlantic salmon stock declined, the fishery became catch and release, and fishermen couldn't take salmon home or to the White House. For many years, Westfall was president of the VZ Salmon Club, a local organization that promoted Atlantic salmon fishing. But as the fish started to decline, so did membership, and the club shut down a few months ago. Westfall is curator of all the memorabilia left behind. He's planning on donating it to a museum. Right now, it's all in his basement. That's a salmon. See this here? Look at all those classic flies there. That's an old reel there. Is that the dam? That's the famous VZ dam. Every morning, he picks up a couple of his friends in his minivan and drives them down to the senior center for lunch. The rest of the day is devoted to the collection. And what I'm doing now, I'm trying to get it all in order. A lot of it's got to be cleaned up. Atlantic salmon used to live in rivers all over New England. But dams, a changing ecosystem, and a challenging marine environment have all contributed to the fish's decline. 
In 2017, federal officials counted just over a thousand salmon returning to the entire East Coast. How do you feel when you think about the future of Atlantic salmon? Well, um, you never see it back again, in my opinion. But you see, this is what's so important about this. What's, what's important about it? Well, it's important. There's a lot of history here. I mean, it'd be a shame to lose this. Yeah. And um, so that's why I've worked on the museum. Near the end of my visit, Westwall offered to bring me by the old VZ Salmon Club. It's right where the dam used to be. The river is wide and fast. The sound of rushing water fills the air. It's both loud and peaceful. And even though the clubhouse looks as though it's seen better days, I also think it may be one of the most beautiful places I've been to in Maine. I'll show you inside real quick. Everything's been turned off, except even electric's off now. Westfall tells me there's been some rumblings about revitalizing the club's membership and opening it again. Someone would like to bring it back as a salmon club, but that can't be done. It doesn't make sense. So, uh, you're not going to see it. it. It's over, in my opinion. But federal officials who monitor the fishery aren't so sure. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has a plan to restore wild Atlantic salmon to Maine. They predict it will take about 75 years. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Caroline Lester. Coming up, we'll explore the history of the New England farm through art. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. At the Florence Griswold Museum in Lyme, Connecticut, art and farming intersect in interesting ways. The land itself used to be a farm right up against the coastal wetlands. It's a landscape that inspired artists from around the region to move back to the land and paint what they saw. The exhibition Art and the New England Farm explores our regions and the museum's agricultural history through paintings, photos, and sculptures, and it takes us right up to the present. We got a tour from the curator, Amy Kurtz Lansing. Where do you want to start with us? I'd like to start with the way that we set up the show, which is to tell people a little bit about or draw their attention to what is the kind of landscape that farmers are contending with in New England? What are the different factors that affect it? Because, you know, now we think of if somebody said, what is a farm? You would imagine a farm in the Midwest with big, wide open rolling fields full of corn. And the New England landscape is really different. It's where farming really began in this country, kind of building on the heritage uh, that colonists learned from Native Americans. But there are also really distinctive features in New England that they were dealing with. The show starts with a section that looks at three different kinds of landscape, but probably the most important one is what we see in a painting that's by the artist George Brustel. And a lot of these people won't be household names even to art lovers. Um, and Brustel is showing us in a painting called Light and Shadow a really rocky upland pasture. And people often joke that the major crop of New England is rocks. It's a place where geology you know, has created 
really rocky terrain, and even though farmers would clear away rocks every year, you know, there are big rocks that are left behind by retreating glaciers, you know, eons ago, uh, and you see some of those in this painting, immovable forms, but then with the kind of um, freezing and thawing of the landscape every year, new rocks come to the surface. So this picture really kind of shows that kind of landscape and just the unavoidable presence of rocks that New England farmers have to deal with in lots of different ways. And how that plays out over time is it relates to the kind of crops that New England farmers grow, the way that they have to focus on specialty crops, and also how they have to focus on animal grazing and dairying. It also, in this painting, without any people in it, it shows you what the people of that time had to contend with and what they continue to contend with today. It's, it's not easy to farm here, and I can imagine people coming to this place assuming that there would be availability of farmland and then encountering a landscape like that and, and understanding this is going to be a pretty hard road we're on. One of the things I learned through this project, which was really interesting to me, is that a lot of the people who arrived here as colonists didn't have a background in farming, and so that would have been even more stark to them, that they were tradespeople or craftsmen. And here they are, they arrive in a place where their survival depends on being able to grow their own food. They benefited from the very sad, horrible fact that, you know, European diseases had preceded them into the Native American population, and so there were fields that Native Americans had cultivated that were, they had died off and they weren't there anymore. And so they were able to use some of those, but then spreading out from those areas, absolutely, they had to encounter all of these rocks. And you can see in this painting, there's some of those rocks left behind, but then on one side, there's a stone wall that's been left. And that's one of the things that they, you know, that they did with those rocks and trying to sort of section off the land. Where would you like to take us next? So let's, um, there's this another major theme. So over here we're looking at um, a wall of paintings that's by George Henry Dury, who was a New Haven artist. And he is an artist who, even if you don't know his name, you might recognize his work because he really established our vision of the American farm. He did that by creating paintings of a certain type of farm, but then his work was also picked up and reproduced by the firm of Courier and Ives. And so in the 19th century, you could buy inexpensive reproductions of his work. And so people of all different um, walks of life would have owned reproductions of those works, and they have continued to be reproduced. And the image that Dury establishes for us is an image of the New England farm as this kind of an idyllic oasis to itself. It really relates to this idea of the farmer as this kind of yeoman who owns his land, is working for himself, is making what his family needs. And so he really elevates this image of the farm to be a kind of icon for American values generally. And you can see in this painting, it is really just this beautiful kind of pastoral scene where you can see the influence man has had on the environment, creating this little farm world for himself. There's a little farmhouse nestled under some lovely trees 
trees, a barn with some animals, hay. The whole family is visible in this picture, so it's the idea that this is a family farm, not a place where you have you know, a whole crew of hired workers necessarily. The mother or the woman is out there right by the house, perhaps about to get some water from the well. The father is at the feed bunk putting feed in there for some of the larger animals. There are children who are just outside the gate of the farm gathering berries in the landscape and kind of taking advantage of that bounty. There are chickens outside. So they have everything they need. As you look at this painting and his other paintings, the, the house, the outbuildings, the other accoutrements of farm life, it gets to, I think, one of the charming and maybe the troubling things about the way in which we view New England, which is because of paintings like this in the mid-19th century that are reproduced all throughout the 20th century, we have almost an amber this idea of what a New England farm is going to look like to the extent that a New England farm in much of our region still looks like this. And I guess I'm wondering how you feel about that, someone who is, has watched art expand and change through the years, that the power of images from a certain time period that is captured then keeps everything preserved in a way that doesn't really allow the New England farm to move forward. That is a dynamic that is hugely at work, that there is a sort of ideal that the artists create. And I just wanted to say that we, even this picture that we've been talking about, Summer Landscape, is actually done in 1862. So just to really underscore the sense in which it is this kind of ideal, but not necessarily the reality of all American farms, it's done during the Civil War, a war that's really being fought over slavery, which is, of course, has this agricultural, immense agricultural application. Images like this could be very powerful in the sense that during is elevating this idea that there should be farms that are run not with slave labor on the one hand and sort of elevating the New England farm as this ideal for Americans but then that kind of persists and it doesn't really you know allow the recognition of the way that farms have evolved and in some senses that image in amber of the New England landscape has also had a certain um, benefit to it because I think when people keep in mind this idea of preserving farms, they're thinking about that idea. And so it, it actually, I think, has translated to things like artists and other people moving from cities, kind of going back to the land, preserving open space. So I think there are different ways to consider it. So now we're in the final gallery of the exhibition, um, which focuses on the work of one artist, Judy Friday, who is a contemporary artist who lives uh, in this area. And she's mostly known as a painter, somebody who paints outside daily. And she lives near a farm that is just a kind of wonderful example of the New England farm and the pressures that are faced by New England farmers, a place called Tiffany Farm, which is in Lyme, Connecticut. And it's been in the same family since the 1840s. And 15 years ago, Judy, because she sees this farm all the time, she's painted there. It is just such a picturesque place that many artists flock there. It's picture perfect. And so she decided, she got a new camera and decided that she was going to kind of go to the farm and meet with this family and really kind of do a sort of photo study. And it turned into this year-long kind of residency where she was at the farm every day and learning from the family about dairy farming, about all of the kind of pressures that they face 
space, from nature, from regulations, from the economy, about keeping the farm going. And so our gallery really traces that year that she spent with them. So you can see all the different seasons, the farm in the snow. And one of the things that you really learn from these images is how kind of unceasing the work of the farmer is. Even today, even though we have machines, you know, that there's just the needs of the animals, you know, have to be tended no matter what. And Judy's images pick up on both what is the kind of romance of the farm, but also on the kind of realities of the farm and how challenging it is. So this is a show that's also really a kind of elegy to the New England dairy farm. Last summer, they stopped the dairying operation because the economics of feeding the cows was not working along with the low price of milk. And these are people who really grew up doing this. You know, you can imagine that this was very wrenching for them, you know, so they didn't lose their farm, but just having to make these real sacrifices to really preserve it so that hopefully when things improve economically, they can develop that part of it again. I'm somewhat struck looking at these photographs that as we were looking earlier at the kind of Courier and Ives image of, of the farm from the middle part of the 19th century, that, that this is what it would look like if you walked into that painting in 2018 and you actually walked around and saw what people had to do now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and some of that would be the same. You know, you're still feeding the animals, you're putting out hay, you know, somebody's, we have a wonderful picture of an itinerant farrier who is somebody who puts shoes on horses, putting shoes on a on one of their um, cricket, one of the horses that the family owned. And that would have been the same as in the days of Courier Knives. But there's another photograph of a milk truck coming to pick up the milk. And that's something that would have been very different, even if the animals themselves, the rhythms of nature, Nature and some of the work of the farm is the same. And of course, right above that, the rocks. There's a, a great picture that I made sure I asked Judy to include of one of the farm buildings with just these enormous rocks. And this farm has a huge rock pile right in the middle of one of the pastures. Taking us back to where we started our conversation. Yeah. Amy, thanks so much for talking with us and showing us this. This is beautiful. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Visit nextnewengland.org for a video of the museum and for more details about the exhibit, which is on view at the Florence Griswold Museum until September 16th of this year. The executive producer of Next is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Lily Tyson and Ali Oshinsky. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. You can hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio. Thank you.